Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Best of All Beginnings. It's a guest essay by Debbie Thomas. Thomas holds a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from The Ohio State University. Her essays have appeared in the Kenyan Review, River Teeth, a Journal of Nonfiction Narrative, in Slate Magazine. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her family. The Best of All Beginnings. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 15th, 2014, Trinity Sunday. Where do you come from? It's a question I heard often growing up. My parents would ask it in the grocery store, or on the playground, or at church, wherever we met people who looked, dressed, or spoke like us. As immigrants from India, homesick and still adjusting to life in the United States, my parents loved to forge connections with other Indians, and those connections always began with origins. Where are you from? Where is your home? Who are your people? We told our stories to identify our origins. This week's reading from Genesis chapter 1 is also an origin story, the origin of humanity. And as such, it offers us surprisingly rich soil in which to root our identities. Neither history nor science, as today's scholars understand those disciplines. The first chapter of Genesis is poetry, hymn, doxology, and myth. If we in the postmodern world struggle to see the truth in these art forms, it's not because scripture is lying. It's because our post-enlightenment imaginations are so impoverished. To call the creation story true is not to quibble with science. It's to probe deeper than any scientific endeavor can take us. It's to acknowledge who we truly are and where we really come from. It's to affirm in faith the reality of a good God, a good world, and a beloved humanity. When I was growing up, I didn't pay much attention to Genesis 1. If anything, I skimmed over it in my eagerness to get to the more suspenseful snake-and-fruit dramas of chapters 2 and 3. Now, though, I'm more inclined to savor the deep truths hidden in Scripture's opening verses. I can't say yet that I believe everything I found. I can only say that I'm in awe of what the chapter tells me about my origins. Some of it feels too good to be true but it's not. I long to believe every word. Where do I come from? Here's what I've discovered so far from Genesis chapter 1. I come from a God who sees. Seven times in the creation narrative, God pauses to reflect on his handiwork. We read, And God saw. Well before his work is done, he steps back to behold all that is taking shape before his eyes. 
like a musician who thrills at a swelling harmony, like a poet who gasps at a beautiful turn of phrase. God lingers over his creation. Every leaf, every wing, every stream, every child. He's not in a hurry, and his interest is the world is far from utilitarian. God's is the gaze of the artist, keen, perceptive, and patient. He observes, he attends, he notices. I come from a God who pays delighted attention. He sees. I also come from a world that is good. Before there was evil, there was goodness. Before there was original sin, there was original blessing. Often in our rush to get our theologies properly balanced and our egos properly squashed, we forget that Genesis 1 is a chapter brimming with goodness and blessing. In fact, God pronounces blessing on the created order three times. He calls creation good and very good seven times. As New Testament scholar Marcus Borg puts it, the creation story is strikingly world-affirming. Against all world-denying theologies and philosophies, he writes, Genesis affirms the world as the good creation of the good God. All that is, is good. What would it mean to believe this in a culture increasingly numb to violence, war, corruption, and greed? Would my eyes stop glazing over? Would my heart be more pierced if I really believe that the world's default setting, my default setting, is not evil, but radical, world-altering good? What would it be like to bless God's world without reservation, stinginess, or fear? What would it be like to incarnate the goodness that is my heritage? We read, God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. I come from a God who makes new things. According to Genesis, God created something new each day for six days. He was an innovator at the world's beginning, calling forth beautiful things that didn't exist until he called them. But is he an innovator now? Do I believe in a God who is stagnant or vibrant? A God whose creative work is finished or ongoing? I like what Frederick Beekner writes. He says, Using the same old materials of earth, air, fire, and water, every 24 hours God creates something new out of them. If you think you're seeing the same show all over again seven times a week, you're crazy. Every morning you wake up to something that in all eternity never was before and never will be again. And the you that wakes up was never the same before and will never be the same again either. I come from the morning and the evening, the light and the darkness. Some Christianity, some versions of Christianity are rife with dualisms. We call the spirit good and the body bad. 
We believe that light comes from God and darkness comes from the devil. But the Genesis story contradicts those oppositions. The God who is spirit blesses the body. The God who creates light calls evening good. The God who brings order also hovers over the chaotic deep. In her recent book on spirituality and darkness, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, The way most people talk about darkness, you would think that it came from a whole different deity. But no. To be human is to live by sunlight and moonlight, with anxiety and delight, admitting limits and transcending them, falling down and rising up. To want a life with only half of these things in it is to want half a life, shutting the other half away where it will not interfere with one's bright fantasies of the way things ought to be. I come from the likeness of God. Biblical scholars don't know for sure what the Imago Dei of Genesis means. Am I like God in my spiritual traits, in my physical form, in my consciousness or creativity? I don't know, but the possibilities are breathtaking to imagine. If nothing else, the creation story insists that God's mark is imprinted on my very being. I might ignore or distort it, but the mark is always there. Whether I acknowledge it or not, I reflect something of God's joy, God's intentions, God's love and beauty just by virtue of existing on the earth. I am his, and so he is mine. I come from a God who rests. Honoring this is no small feat in workaholic America, where every hour of every day is measured in profits gained or advantages lost. For me, the Sabbath doesn't come naturally. I forget about it. I fear it. I resist it. To remember that God rested is to be both startled and humbled. How dare I claim not to need a break when God himself took one? The Sabbath is the only thing in the creation account called holy. I would do well to pay attention. I no longer roll my eyes when I hear the question, where do you come from? My parents still ask it, and these days I ask it too. Not to highlight differences, but to reach across those differences and learn how much we have in common. Genesis 1 assures us that we're on solid ground as we attempt these connections. Where do we come from? We come from the best of beginnings. We come from a glorious creator. We come from the loving heart of God. The Best of All Beginnings, a guest essay by Debbie Thomas. For books this week, I review a new title by Mario Livio. The title is called Brilliant Blunders, From Darwin to Einstein, 
colossal mistakes made by great scientists that changed our understanding of life in the universe. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2013, 341 pages. After reading Mario Livio's book, the physicist Freeman Dyson of Princeton wrote that he now looks on the history of science in a new way. Livio looks at only five scientists who made brilliant blunders. The naturalist Charles Darwin, physicist William Thomson, Lord Kelvin, the chemist Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel Prizes, and the physicists Fred Hoyle and Albert Einstein. Livio helped Dyson to see many more brilliant blunderers in every century, in every science. Darwin's views of blending inheritance and pangenesis were fundamentally flawed and catastrophic for his view of natural selection. Kelvin was what Livio calls an obstructionist who tried to discredit geologists' conclusion that the Earth was 4.5 billion years old and not 100 million years like he argued. As for Pauling, he was preposterously wrong about the structure of DNA. Hoyle's view of a steady-state universe with no beginning or end rejected the consensus view of the Big Bang. And Einstein posited a cosmological constant to support his idea of a static universe in opposition to the reality of an expanding cosmos. Livio corrects the popular notion that science proceeds from one success to another. Nothing could be further from the truth, he writes. Mistakes and failures are not only inevitable, they are essential as catalysts for progress. In the more conjectural parts of his book, he speculates about the causes of blunders. Science is a human enterprise, subject to oversights, memory lapse, haste, competition, personal distractions, opposition to new ideas, cognitive dissonance, bad math, misplaced confidence, misguided intuition, willful blindness to obvious facts, and so on. Dyson concludes his review of Livio with a story about his own biggest blunder. He concurs with Livio's main point that the passionate pursuit of wrong theories is part of the normal development of science. Darwin and Einstein were gracious losers who admitted their mistakes. Kelvin and Pauling were not so good. Hoyle was a bad loser who denied to the end that he had even made a mistake. The great scientists, write Dyson, are the best losers. Mario Livio, Brilliant Blunders from Darwin to Einstein. For movies this week, I review a film called Mitt from the year 2014. Mitt Romney's political career is over, 
So this film is mainly a historical artifact for political junkies. The writer-director Greg Whiteley is said to have had unrestricted behind-the-scenes access to Romney. From 2006, when he first sought the presidential nomination and lost to John McCain in 2008, until his loss to Obama in 2012. There's no narration whatsoever to the film. Rather, most all the scenes are of Romney with his extended family. And what you see is what you've probably already heard, that Romney appears to be an exceptionally good, kind, and magnanimous person, that campaigns are brutal and dehumanizing, and that he had problems branding himself. Behind the public bravado that's necessary for campaigning, Romney comes across as, a brutally, as brutally candid about how he was cast. He says, I'm the flip-flopping Mormon who'll do anything to get elected. From the year 2014, Mitt. And for Trinity Sunday, and to go with Debbie Thomas's fine essay on Genesis chapter 1, for poetry this week we've posted a poem called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins lived from 1844 to 1889. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward, springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast, and with, ah, bright wings. Gerard Manley Hopkins, God's Grandeur. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 15th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.